everyone and welcome to episode 569 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I've been wondering where in the world the year went. 2023 seems to have whizzed by. I must admit, I say this every year, but I suppose, and I suppose this year is no different. But it is about this time of year when you often look around and think, well, I often think this, you know, all the things I was planning to get done and did I do them, you know, my plans for 2023. Well, if that's you, there's still time, right? Even if that means just getting a start on whatever it was that was on your list. If you get a start, you might be surprised the momentum that could create and you could end up finishing your year achieving more than you thought you would actually. So whether that's decluttering that cupboard that you've always wanted to or doing a course or visiting a place you've always wanted to check out, there's still time. So I encourage you to make it happen, whatever that is for you. 2023 could still be your year. And now we're at this time of the episode where we welcome Nat Newman, our creative writing tutor here at the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the fantastic creative writing tutors here. And she's here to bring us her writing tip for the week. Take it away, Nat. Hello, Valerie. Um, Well, this week I've got, I think, quite a simple tip, but sometimes simple is the most effective. And I'm talking about the word and. Oh, okay. And A-N-D. 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 It's a great word. Um, I had a student in one of our creative writing stage one classes and they were a bit worried that they were using and too much um, oh. to, to connect kind of clauses together. Um, for example, um, he took his hand out of his pocket and waved at her. After she had left, he looked at the indicator board and found the next train to Leeds. So that's kind of two sentences with two ands in there. Um, yeah. And it's perfectly perfectly normal. We're used to hearing that word a lot in English. Um, I, I just think it's a, it's a great word. It's a great way to um, join sentences together or clauses together. And I think sometimes the simplest answer is the way to go. I think sometimes we want to do therefore, because, in spite of, mm. nevertheless. And often actually the word you want is and. Um, I also often see people use as, um, but as implies things are happening kind of at the same, at the time. same time. Yeah. And, and that's often not actually what we mean by it. So I think it's perfectly fine when in doubt use, and it's a, it's a really, really great word. Yeah. Just keep it simple, as you say. And often the same thing can be said for the word said, because people yes. think that they need to say, he shouted, she um, whispered and all of that. But in fact, it, just using she said or he said or they said or whatever is often the simplest thing because you don't have to be so um, explicit in the way someone has said something. And often yeah. readers just read, don't even read the word said. They don't, they don't actually go, oh, that's being repetitive. It's mm-hmm. almost something, it's, it's a word that they don't even see in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Your, your eye just kind of glides over it. And, and same with the word mm. and. We're so used to it being there that, I, I mean, obviously you can overuse it, but um, mm. but for the most part, yeah, said and and um, are, are really, really great words. With said, that's actually interesting. That comes up a lot um, 
where people will say, um, you know, he yelled, she emoted, he whispered mm. uh, at, over and over again using all these different words. Um, but the other thing is mostly when we say something, we often do just say it like in real yes. life. Un- unless you're actually, unless you're putting some real big emotion behind what you're saying, we kind of just say things. So it makes sense to just use said in your dialogue. Yeah. And I'm glad you bring you brought up the word and because literally just yesterday, uh, so someone asked me to look at their piece of writing and I said, sure, you know, it was it wasn't that long. So um I mean it was long enough, but I I I I read it and I and every and was an ampersand. Oh and I did that just was make like crawl. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I said, I'm getting a facial tick just <laughs> reading this. And they had their argument for why it should be an ampersand because they felt things needed to be, you know, tighter and more succinct or whatever, um, which is fine in certain situations like um, logos mm-hmm. or certain headlines because sometimes you are constricted physically by the space that you have for your words but anything that's like body copy <laughs> mm. use the actual word a n d yeah 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 because the the symbol itself requires um almost an active translation you have to you have to yes. pause for a microsecond on it to sort of go oh that's right that's and um, and yes. it just interrupts your flow, particularly, and it looks weird on the page when you're trying to read totally weird. a block of text. But for some that. people, it doesn't look weird, I guess, you know. Mm. They, some people just use it all the time. But anyway, there you go, the word and and the word said. Thank you so much, Nat. All right, thanks. Now let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of Best Wishes by Richard Glover to give away. Are you looking for a funny and sincere read? Well, I have you covered. This week's giveaway will make you laugh, but also ask big and small questions about how to improve our world. I have three copies of Best Wishes by Richard Glover to give away. Here's the blurb. Do you hate noisy restaurants, pre-ripped jeans, and pedestrians who walk five abreast? Do you also have a problem with plastic-wrapped fruit, climate change deniers, and takeaway sandwiches priced at $14.95? And most of all, do you think the world would be a better place if people got back their sense of humour? Here's proof you're not alone. Heartfelt and hilarious, serious but sly, Best Wishes is the encyclopedia of Can Do Better. It's a plea for a better world, one wish at a time. All right, so I have three copies of Best Wishes by Richard Glover to give away. Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. Entries close on the 23rd of October. So make sure you get in if you want to be in with a chance. That's writercentre.com.au slash win win. And don't worry if you're there sometime in the future, um, that's okay because there'll be some other fantastic competition there for you to enter. And now, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are because the word of the week is serac. Serac, that's S-E-R-A-C, serac. So this is a very specific word that you may never actually use but it's a large block or pinnacle-like mass of ice on a glacier formed by melting or movement of the ice. And I love this because it comes from the Swiss French and is originally the name of 
a white cheese. There you go, Serac. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and balance, as well as tips on publishing. This online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll find extensive personal feedback from your tutor and classmates throughout the program. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash novel writing. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Just a trigger warning that the novel we discuss has themes around sexual assault. There's no graphic discussion or explicit scenes. We focus on the writing process, but I just wanted to let you know just in case. Today, I'm talking to Susie Miller, an international playwright, librettist, screenwriter, and now novelist. Her latest novel is Prima Facie, which evolved out of the Olivier Award-winning play of the same name. Susie lives between London, UK, and Sydney, Australia. She has been produced around the world with multiple prestigious awards. She's also the playwright behind the powerhouse production of RGB about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thank you so much for joining us today, Susie. It's a delight. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited to talk to you. I have so many questions. Um, Your novel, Prima Facie, which is, it was spawned out of your incredible award-winning play, is out. So for our audience who haven't yet discovered the world of Susie Miller, which we are going to delve into in this chat, what is Prima Facie about? So Prima Facie takes a young woman who's a barrister who has come from fairly humble beginnings and not the sort of socioeconomic background that you imagine a barrister comes from. In this case, she comes from outside of London and she's moved into London. So it's set in, it's set in the UK and there's a reason for that, which we can go into later. But she, so she comes from a, a lower socioeconomic background with a single mum and she's done it tough. But she's been really successful all the way through school and she ended up at Cambridge on a scholarship. She studied law. She's now at the bar. And she's doing brilliantly, like doing really well. She's in a sort of like round 30 mark um, and she's got friends and she's part of the community. She's always had to sort of fake it till she made it in terms of some of those socioeconomic cues and so forth. But she's you, we open the book with her in court just like nailing a cross-examination and she's quite proud of herself. And, you know, she really believes in the law and sees the law as not just the thing that got her to this incredible position in her life but also something she really believes in as the tool that we use for justice and for keeping people safe. And so she 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 is a defense lawyer by trade and she has lives in chambers or works in chambers with other barristers and they're all sort of mates and so forth. And most of them come from fairly privileged backgrounds, but she starts a relationship with someone in chambers who's also a defense lawyer and it starts with a lot of banter and a lot of fun and then before they know it they're having a sexual relationship and she's quite into him. Talks to her best friend even about how oh my god maybe it could be a relationship and um and then they end up I'm sorry about the sirens out in in, in <laughs> West Sydney. And um and they, it's it's good timing though, because then she ends up going taking him back to her house after a bit of a dinner and a lot of drinking. And he sexually so he rapes her basically in her bed after they'd had sex previously in the night. And then later in the night he assumes consent where it isn't and takes it to an nth degree. And she's like really traumatized. She decides she just 
leaves her own flat and walks after she's had a shower and walks and walks and walks until she gets in a cab and she asks and she realizes she wants to report it. So she reports it to the police and then she ends up taking it, ends up going to court, which is unusual in itself, but I guess because they're both high profile, it seemed like it went forward. And then we what we we go with her as she goes through the court process to see what happens and how different journeys along the way, how you know, we know it happened to her because we're with her as it's happening. And we see how the court changes her narrative to be something that is not what happened at all. So, and then she has a sort of epiphany at the end where she sort of speaks about the system itself. So it's very much based on a sort of legal story as such, but also on a woman's journey from that understanding of the law as this great thing to sort of work with and to sort of interrogate her intelligence with and to sort of have power with to seeing how it can also make you powerless. And it is really a, uh, and we go into her backstory a lot about how she grew up and what kind of motivated her to get there and some of the experiences she had as a young girl and her awareness of class, very much so, and her kind of learning curve in terms of understanding that those that went to private schools and had sort of strong educations had different privilege that she didn't even know existed. Um, and I guess ultimately we also see his his backstory and the sort of privilege and expectations he has and the the way that he leads a reasonably charmed existence and how that power when it comes all comes down to it is is the thing that wins up all out so it also just really in a different manner I mean it is funny in points I point that out because the play was very funny until it came to a I mean I think there was a moment every night in the play where people would laugh hysterically at a certain point and I, I knew that within about two minutes they would be utterly silent because something happens after that giggling that's utterly silent. And my my daughter, who's only twenty, was only twenty when she saw it in London on the West End. She'd seen it in Australia a couple of times, and she sat in the preview before it opened in the West End. And she said, I feel sorry for everyone laughing. They don't know what's going to happen in a minute. And I thought, that's good. That's good. That's a good thing for the play. But I know what she means is in a minute they're all going to go, oh, no, that's not funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so there's lots of different sort of aspects to it. But really we're inside her head for most of the story and where, she, where, where she's grappling with her position in society and herself as a young woman and her background and her relationship with her family that's changed after she's become quite successful. And you know where her values lie, I guess, and that shifts throughout the throughout the novel. Now it's such an incredible, incredibly powerful story with multiple themes. Um, what made you want to write this? What was the thing that sparked? Oh, you know, I'm going to write this story. Okay, so first of all, I I knew that I needed to write something about sexual assault at some point because I'd been through law school. I'd taken statements from sexual assault victims for years and years of my life, even though I was a defence lawyer. I used to do defence for 25 and under, so young young adults as well as children, and I had lots of young women come in and disclose the sexual assault to me over a period of 10, 15 years. And so I took six statements a week on that regard, and they were all really similar. All these terrible, horrific things happened to these young women that had traumatised them beyond belief, and yet they couldn't speak clearly about it or they'd, fro- they'd, they'd frozen up during the process of what happened to them. And they also didn't feel that they could talk to the police about it or if they did, the police had a certain attitude toward them or it didn't even go to court. But in any event, they had such similar kind of templates for how they told their story and what they didn't understand as 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 the idea that the community blamed them for it somehow and they blamed themselves and there was a whole shame and blame attached to it. And I just really wanted to interrogate that and look at how the law was out of sync with the community 
uh, community values, particularly of late. But even when I was at law school, it was like the outrage of women that were sexually assaulted, and yet the court only saw it from the perspective of a man being lied about or cheated, or somehow they were allowed to, well, they were legally allowed to assume consent if they believed consent was there. There was no onus to ask someone if that was okay or anything along those lines. And we still have inherited a lot of that. In New South Wales, things have changed more recently, but you know, in the UK, that is still the standing rape case, that if if he thinks that there's consent, then there's we decide there's consent. So it's just not in keeping with kind of modern contemporary society. And I think the law is often backward in coming up, catching up with contemporary society. And I just wanted to unravel it and say that as a defence lawyer who believes in innocence until proven guilty, because otherwise we're in a dictatorship, if we can point to someone and say, you're guilty regardless, we have to be able to say you're innocent until we can prove something. But what I noticed with sexual assault law was if if only one in 20 of the people that even disclose it, and only the people that disclose are only one in 10, go to court. So one in 20 of the one in 10 go to court and 1.3% conviction rate, there's something amiss. And I know as a defence lawyer it's hard to say that it's not fair for the victim because you're supposed to be on the side of the defendant. But I just noticed all along that, you know, you demolish a sexual assault victim in the stand and they walk away totally traumatised. And the young women that I met in the course of my job um, were also very traumatised and had started using drugs to alleviate, to self-medicate for the despair they were in. They'd lost their families. People had blamed them for what happened. And they just sort of disappeared and their lives were very, very compromised. So I just felt like I wanted to unravel it from the perspective of a lawyer. And I thought the best thing to do is to take a lawyer who works in that system, much like I did, but perhaps is more committed to the system because it's given her everything. And then to show her what it feels like on the other side of that system when you're actually a witness in your own courtroom and the law doesn't actually, we know as the audience or the reader that she definitely was sexually, so was raped by this man, but we see how how the court justifies the narrative that he comes up with. And I think it's just interesting for people that aren't legally trained, I guess it's it was the way that I would describe it to my kids who are young adults and say this is what the law does and this is what the law is trying to do. But when it comes to sexual assault, I don't think the courts are a fit, are a fit forum to discuss these issues. So it's obviously shone a light on this area, not only for lay people, but also in the legal profession, especially yeah. in the UK. Amazing. And in, yeah. Yeah, in, in the UK, um, when it was on, when it was, um, when the production was on, it was nominated for five Olivier's, it won two Olivier's. And obviously it, it also starred Jodie Comer, who is the incredible actress who um, was in Killing Eve and is now an A-list, <laughs> an A-list yeah. actress everywhere. But I understand, is this correct, that um, a, I guess a film of the play is now required viewing for for people who before they are admitted to the bar is that correct no that's not quite correct it's actually more significant than that it's for new mm-hmm. judges oh my the, god in a rape case but it's for new judges in northern ireland at the moment with an ad with some advocacy about it being for the whole of the uk but one thing that was really interesting to me is that i got a call from a judge of the old bailey while you know who'd got my number from one of the barristers that i knew in the court and she called me to say, I've just seen your play on the West End. I just want you to know that I'm the judge that writes the direction to the jury about what they can and can't believe and what they can and can't take into account when they deliberate. And I've just come home and after seeing your play, I'm so I'm so affected that I've rewritten the direction to the jury 
on sexual assault and rape cases and I've used language from your play and I call it my prima facie direction and now that is the direction that goes to juries in the UK. So I think, wow. and, and the book really fleshes that out, exactly how that comes about. And I think that moment for me was astonishing because I thought this is this is art really affecting the world, which is amazing. Yes, absolutely other, amazing. And then, you know, then the other thing is that 3,000 police officers had to view the play on film um, in northern Yorkshire, which is a tough area. I <laughs> think 3,000 of the police officers saw the film and then discussed it, the, fil- the film of the play. And a lot of them emailed myself and the producer and so forth and said, one of, and one of the, you know, really heavyweights said, you know, I've been in this crew for a long time. I've taken a lot of sexual assault statements and I now realise I've been letting those a lot of those complainants down, the way that I've asked the questions, the things that I've assumed, and it's up for discussion now. We had a really robust discussion and we'll be doing it differently from now on. So Did that you was, expect this level of impact? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not because you just... You know, you write a play in a dark room in your home and you never expect that it's going to, first of all, you hope it gets out there. Then you hope it goes to the West End. Then you hope you get an Olivier for the best play. I mean, that's the dream. And then it goes to Broadway and the same thing happens and Jodie gets a Tony and all the rest of it. But I think that the, the and also when it was on in Broadway, it was playing in on Broadway. And at the same time, Trump had his civil action for sexual assault in court in the same city, New York. And the New York Times commented that what's playing out in court is also playing out on stage. We're watching someone be cross-examined in a manner that makes us feel very unsure that this is right. So it was just so interesting recognising that you'd hit a kind of zeitgeist that people were prepared to speak about, whereas when I wrote the, when I wrote the play first up, I thought no one's ever going to, you know, put this on. It's like a, how do you say, oh, I've written a one-person rape play and it's a bit <laughs> funny, like... I don't know who's going to put that on. But the fact is it did go on in Australia and then it was picked up overseas. And the novel has been an utter delight to write because in the novel, I mean, when I did the first draft of the play, of course, it was three hours long and it was reduced to sort of 70 minutes. Um, But I had all of those fabulous scenes that I couldn't put in the play that I had to sort of take to one side and look at and think, what am I going to do with them? Some of them were really moving to me personally as the writer and I was really interrogating how gender and class interact as well because class is a bit of an unknown in Australia. We pretend it doesn't exist. We know about race, we know about we know about gender and we know about disability, but we we pretend we're a classless society. And there's a lot of in to me, there's a lot of integration between class and race or class and gender, or all three, even to be honest, and even class and disability. And, I mean, I grew up without that kind of class, like in a, in a class of, you know, a tribal kind of Catholic family. And um, it was interesting to me to go to university and realise, oh, there's things that I really don't know about access to information, about access to power, about how you conduct yourself in certain scenarios that they've all learnt at school that I just didn't know. And so I had my own experience of that. But I have to say in the UK, the minute you open your mouth as a non-Londoner, you actually present yourself as someone from a different village and usually a different class. So Jodie Comer had a had a Scouse accent, which is a Liverpool accent, which she used a lot in the play. But then when she was in court, she used her court voice, which is a bit different. But she was very, all she had to do was open her mouth and we saw there was a different class that she was playing with. So that's why the story is set in London in the novel, because I wanted to play with a class system that was very well known. So people knew that she wasn't of the class that she was working in but that she had started to kind of take on board so many of the mannerisms and way to be in that class that she thought she'd sort of 
you know, she thought she'd managed it until the chips are down and she realises, oh, at the end of the day, I'm always going to be the person that's not quite there. Let's talk briefly about your background. I want to come circle back and talk about the evolution into the book because I think that that's going to be fascinating. But most people who've won an Olivier, (laughs) you kind of think that they've been in this profession forever. But in fact, you studied science (laughs) first off at university and much later then decided, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. Can you just talk us very briefly like a potted career history of why you made those decisions and when did you decide I want to write plays? Okay, really, really good question. I think I've written since the minute I could like write basically. In fact, someone sent me a story I wrote in grade two that they'd somehow was in the school magazine at primary school for St. Coleman's in Balaclava, Melbourne. But that school doesn't exist anymore. And I mean, they sent it to me and it's a funny little story about a sheep or something. But I thought I've always written. I just did it quietly and on my own because, you know, I just did it for enjoyment. I never thought of it as something you could do for a career. And I was very, very good at science at school and other things, but science sort of led me towards mathematics and science at university. I did my science degree. I was the first person in my home ever to go to university, in my family ever to go to university on both sides, and the first one to ever get a degree, obviously. And and I was doing my honours year in immunology and microbiology in the laboratories at Monash Uni, and Chernobyl happened, and everyone looked up from their computers, well, not computers, their microscopes, and went, oh, that's terrible because it was on the radio. And I was just desperate to talk about the human cost of that and what that meant for communities and how that was, you know, what that was going to do in terms of politics. And everyone looked back down in the into their microscopes, and I was supposed to go on and do a PhD in that laboratory like the year after. And that was the moment that I thought, I think I have to do something else. I think I have to, I'm a people person. I need to be around people that talk. And so I applied for law school and I got in in Melbourne and I got in in Sydney, but Sydney was a shorter course if you already had a degree. So I moved to Sydney, did law, practiced law and always, and continued to write. In fact, I used to write plays as a kid, like nativity plays or religious plays because, you know, I was at a Catholic school. And then, um, but we didn't have a drama, we didn't have a drama subject at my high school. And we didn't have any drama clubs or we didn't go to, I never went to the theatre till I was in my 20s. So it was a new experience for me and I loved it. And I did some acting and then I started writing. And then I went to NIDA while I was a lawyer. At night, I went to NIDA to do the playwright studio, which was a very important, the only playwrights thing you could do at the time in New South Wales. And they only took seven a year. And when I did that, I realised this is my passion. This is what I want to do. So I then had, and I had my baby. I had my first child then. So I was, um, and I went back to work after that. And I worked three days a week as a lawyer and three days a week as a writer. And my first play went on in King's Cross about the the stories that came out of King's Cross because that's where I was working as a human rights lawyer. And it went to the opera house and did very, very well. And I thought, this is my future. And then I started sort of really writing plays that went on in Sydney. And I realised it's quite tricky to be a woman playwright in Australia at the time. Uh, Now it's so much better. But at the time it was impossible. There were so few women playwrights programmed. And then I I did a sort of experiment where I wrote a two-hander, a two-person play, and I also recognised that if I put it just in a very easy design, like in a hotel room, so very easy play to put on, and I sent it to every theatre, but I also sent it to a producer in Edinburgh and a producer, the Edinburgh Festival and a producer in New York. And it went on in, it got picked up and went on in New York and Edinburgh. And in New York, it won this major award, a writer's award. And in Edinburgh, it got really great reviews. And no one in Australia ever got back to me. So I figured 
really maybe I don't have time on my side because I came to playwriting in my 30s. And so I thought I, I have to go to London. That's where a writer's theatre is for me and where they're already like listening to women playwrights. And so I went and did it. And then I got offered a residency at the National Theatre for one of my plays that went on there. And then I got offered another one that was a significant one. And the whole family moved over there in 2010. So I left the law in 2010. I understand that that you, you there was a crossroads, a decision where you uh, were offered the residency or you were offered the position, the position as a magistrate. Yeah, that's right. It was. And it like an interesting moment because one paid really well, one paid hardly anything. <laughs> but it was almost like that was the moment when I thought, well, if I'm not going to take that position, then I obviously am not as ambitious in this area. It's the other area that I want to do. And, you know, and theatre writing just came to me because I loved anything dramatic. But I also always wrote prose on the side. I just didn't submit it for things because I was doing so well in theatre. And this came, and I think the suggestion that this could be a book came as a way, and I really embraced it because I knew the character so well. Mm -hmm. I had done so much research and I had written so many other scenes that I would have loved to expand upon. And even the scenes in the play, I really wanted to, you know, they all became quite short because I had to get the play over in 90 minutes. But I got to go back and sort of languish over a few months and just write the whole story of everything that I thought I wanted to have in the story. And, you know, there were no actors looking over my shoulder to say, that's going to be too long in the play or a director saying, how am I going to put that on stage? So it was just a pure writerly experience and it was utterly, utterly so rewarding. And I do write screen as well. So I thought I had no idea prose would be so satisfying and just such a, just an, a, a wonderful way to sort of flex that writing muscle without feedback until you'd finished the whole sort of 320 pages. <laughs> and it was lovely, actually. I really enjoyed it. And obviously as a book, it's going to reach so many more people because you can yeah. go to the bookshop and buy it as opposed to you have to wait for the play to be on to, yeah, to yeah. get a ticket and it has to be on in your city and all of that. Yeah. Um now that you've, it sounds like you found it like a, as you say, a rewarding experience and very freeing because you don't have those strictures of budget, stage production or actors, all of that. So does that mean you're going to write more? Definitely. I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've, I'm on a two book deal with some of the publishers. So it's been published in Australia with Pan Macmillan and also in the UK with Penguin and also in New York with Macmillan. And then it's also been translated already into know, German, Italian, I don't know, Hungarian, a few others. But the play has already reached, I think it's been translated into 25 languages already. Wow. And I, but what I feel with the book is you can take it home with you and you can spend time with her rather than just 90 minutes on stage with whoever happens to be playing her. And I've also written the screenplay and the person playing the act, playing Tessa in the screenplay is a black woman, Cynthia Riva, who's an amazing actor. And the reason I did that was because I thought, you know, we've had Jodie Comer do it. We know what class and gender is. And I wanted to add race to that conversation. And Cynthia really wanted to have that conversation. So with the book, I have actually made it clear that you don't know what Tessa looks like. You, you know, like you will put your, I want Tessa to be every woman in a way, every smart woman. So and there's something about her being smart and a lawyer that allowed people, I mean, I have had thousands and thousands of DMs and letters and cards, as has Jody. that between the two of us we've been inundated, of women giving us their testimony or saying, when I saw that, I realised it's not me, it's not my shame. And the fact that Tessa, who's a barrister, if it could happen to her, then it's not my fault. Um, and there was something about that that was like really moving because I didn't expect that. That wasn't the reason I wrote it. I wanted people to see the story and to understand it and 
empathize with her, but I didn't realize that they would actually have a chance to show this book to someone that they know, like their mother or someone that, and say, look, this is how it happens. This is the experience of it. And it's not my, Jess's experience is not my experience. I think every woman I know has had some sort of interaction where if you look back over your sex life, you'll say there were times where you felt coerced or you felt that you were saying yes when you when you really were trying to get out of it. Well, you, you ended up having sex with someone that you weren't sure that you wanted to. Or even even in general, just the concept of like, Every woman I know who walks home from the tube late at night or the station late at night and doesn't have their keys in a certain position and a phone at the ready and a fear in their gut when they see someone watching them that's a man. And you think, you know, I spoke to a male friend of mine not so long ago who said, you know, I never realised it happened every time. And I went, yeah, it's just part of I, I mean, I can't imagine. One time I tried to dare myself to walk home and not be scared and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I thought, wow, because my 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 sort of, I guess my brain knows and my body knows that there is danger and the danger mm. exists in the men on the street at that time that might look at you in a certain way and make you fear for what's possible. So, and, you know, like it's interesting to me because, um, you know, the, the, the highest form of murder in Australia is femicide, is women being killed by partners or men that they've rejected. And you think, gee, it's really dangerous to be of the female gender. Yeah, yeah. yeah one of the things you just said was that with the book you get to spend time with her, spend time with Tessa. And <clears throat> um, I think that, uh, you know, and any anyone who's listening to this, go get a copy of this book especially. I mean, go get a copy of this book anyway, but especially if you're an aspiring writer because, I mean, the prose is brilliant. But one of the incredibly fantastic and clever literary techniques that you've used is you mean we get into her head heart and body this is as deep this is so deep the way that you bring the reader into Tessa's mind because the way you've written it is it's it's not a monologue but it's all the it's the thoughts that are in her head so even though there's dialogue it's not presented in a traditional dialogue way it's as she hears it and I found that fascinating and so effective how did you come to that decision to use that technique you know it was it was interesting I was so supported by the publishers so I'm very lucky but for me it was about saying women have a dialogue with themselves constantly they have a dialogue. They have a dialogue with other people that's out, that's spoken, but they have another dialogue about the dialogue they're having, which is the thought process of them saying, "I shouldn't have said it like that." So they're constantly like juggling between that. And when I've spoken to a lot of men, they don't necessarily have that as much. And I think it's because women are doing a dance around the patriarchy and going, "I want to say this, but I also don't want to be rejected for saying it, and I also want to make it a point of it, but I also don't want to upset a friend or whatever." So they're constantly questioning how they're going to put something, how they're going to portray something, how they're being portrayed, how they're being presented. And I think that I just wanted that internal dialogue that she's having in her head all the time. I mean, she's a smart woman too. And I think the smarter the woman is, the more they recognise that, you know, they're, 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 the, you know, the ground is shifting beneath them often in a scenario. And from moment to moment, you're actually being very vigilant about the power holders in a particular room and how they're perceiving you and whether they're judging you in a certain way or making assumptions about your voice or your class or the quips that you make or even just the way you're dressed. Now, I, and, you know, even when we watch television, and I've noticed this possibly more in the last five or ten years, but, you know, we always, 
we observe whether we like it or not and even if we don't want to what the woman on television looks like appears like what they're wearing and yet with a man with a suit and a tie or a shirt and a tie we don't really we don't really acknowledge it we just go oh that's such and such we don't go oh they're looking bad today or good today or I like their new glasses or I don't or their hair's done a certain way and I think that you know like when you know that you're being taken like that first that that first impression has so many different kind of meanings to different people you know you're constantly juggling how you present yourself to the world mm, and I think really does that because she does have that kind of gender and class interaction and again you know what a great conversation I had about um the the screenplay is with Cynthia Revo playing Tessa you know she said walking into the room as a black woman already the dynamic has changed it doesn't have to be written in there just be walking in already assumptions and certain ideas are there whether I like it or not as and if Tess is black that's what happens and I think it's the same with any you know any other kind of intersectional way of like looking at um, gender and something else so I found it really really exciting to be able to stretch that out within her internal dialogue and within her internal conversation and then see what she thinks but what she says is something different and I think Readers have really responded to that, so I feel excited mm. about it. But it came oh. very naturally to me, possibly because I'm a very character-based playwright. So her character was so known to me and, you know, I got the chance to put her in all sorts of scenarios but also to go back in time and take, you know, mm. like various parts of her life from her backstory that are touched on in the play but not, not, not stretched out and really allow her to have that experience and to reflect on it at the age she was when she had the particular experience oh it's it's effortless and honestly everyone get a copy not just because it's a fantastic book but it's like a master class in 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 deep point of view it's fantastic now last year um I went to or was it this year I've forgotten now but I went to um RBG at the oh, Sydney yes. Theatre Company, which, of course, is your play about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and starring Heather Mitchell. It was starring Heather Mitchell in the one I, um, uh, that I, the one I went to. And I literally, for the next week, rang everyone I knew or emailed (laughs) everyone I knew. I said, you've got to go see this. And it's one of the best things I've seen in years. It's brilliant. It's just magnificent. And now you're taking it elsewhere um around the world but w- what I want to know is now that you've kind of done this that you've written a novel and you you've th- sounds like you thoroughly enjoyed it what's the mix gonna look like for you tell me about that the mix in your life or what you actually do because you, you know, write screenplays as well you know I think that women are amazing jugglers I think that is a skill set that is really underestimated and I think the minute you're a parent or that you're a woman and a working a working woman with like and also somehow or other taking responsibility for a lot of the things at home that you are a juggler and you learn that skill and you either become very good at it or it actually depletes you entirely but the women I know who are still working and still mothering or parenting and still kind of managing their home in some way even if their partners assist there's just the emotional heavy lifting that women do and so for me personally I think that that you know that skill set or that that juggling muscle has been exercised to a point where it actually really enhances my career. So I, at the same time and in each day of my life, I'll write some prose, some theatre and some screen because I have so many different projects on the boil, but always one main one at each time. 
And so at the moment I'm writing a TV series that's, you know, about to pop and I'm writing, I'm doing the sort of summary for my next novel. And I'm also doing the second draft of a play that's going on at the National Theatre in London. So, and then of course, you know, they're the, they're the writing days and the other, then I have two days a week, which is just management where I have a PA and we go through everything I have to do for the next couple of weeks. And I do interviews like with yourself and I do admin and I do conversations and I have walk and talk with people that I think are really great with ideas that I can run things fast. And so it's a very rich world. But I realise when people say, how do you do all those things? I think that's what women do. They do all those things. They're just not often, it's just not often seen. So with me, it's seen because it it results in a product, like a book, a play and a screenplay. But you know, before I was writing all of those things, there were other things that I was doing in those spaces, like raising children and, you know, like at schools and driving around and and also, you know, like just managing all sorts of emotional things that come up within a family. And so I think that, you know, while I still do some of that because I still have children, but they're adults now, there's just this space where I can dream and actually create more because I have the rich life of having done all those things, but I have I have developed that juggling to know that if you just have a bit of grit and a bit of discipline and a routine and you just, I mean, I have three days a week plus weekends where I write and two days where I do like Mondays and Tuesdays, sorry, Tuesdays and Thursdays I do admin. And the other three days are, uh, you know, they're fantastic days where I just get to write and I have like, Maybe the morning is theatre and the afternoon is, you know, screen and then the night is, you know, like dreaming up some ideas for chapters in my next book. But there's a seamlessness to it because I think women are used to chopping and changing between what they do. And I guess that was the skill set I had and developed as a parent of two very young children that when we were moving around the world and so forth. And I think that that's enhanced my process, to be honest. Wow. Um, before we wrap up, I want to just come back to you mentioned that you've got a two book deal. Um, and the thing is, after reading Prima Facie, after reading this, because the thing is, like, I know I'm going to go see every play that you ever that ever gets produced, right? If if I'm in that city. But um, in terms of books, I'm, I was after reading Prima Facie, I was almost kind of like annoyed that there weren't more. So <laughs> is the next one going to be set in the world of the legal world you know because you've written quite a number of things in the yeah yeah I mean I think it will be I've got I mean there's two next ones and so I'm sort of working between which one comes out first but um yeah yeah I mean there's always a little bit of an attitude of either the legal world or the kind of human rights world or something but certainly I love working with strong women protagonists and I think that the joy of Prima Facie, the book and the play, has shown me that the days where they say, oh, don't have a woman protagonist because, you know, it won't be as successful, those days are gone. So I feel like, oh, wow, I can just write what I want to write. And it's really exciting because, you know, like the internal world of women is such an interesting landscape and I think so many of us whisper it, you know, between like with coffees at the coffee shop about, oh, you're not going to believe what else I'm dealing with. And I just think I love to sort of excavate that and give words and meaning to it, but also make it visible so that other women see their lives reflected in literature in a way that's actually very contemporary rather than old fashioned. And I guess that's what I'm aiming to hopefully do. <laughs> Um, before we wrap up, wrap up, I would love to ask you your top three tips for people who might be interested in writing plays and pursuing their own, you know, playwriting aspirations. Absolutely. Well, I have I have three tips straight off. I haven't thought of this before, but you just it's exciting to think of it. One is I would read a play a day. 
<laughs> and you can get them on you can get them on your Kindle to buy new ones that are on at the moment. You can get a book of, you can go to the library and get a collection of Chekhovs so you can read a contemporary one one day and check off the next and you know you've got that library book for all time. All Australian plays or like any published Australian play is at every library in Australia. But aside from reading a play a day, I would see as much theater as you can, even if it's bad theater. I would subscribe to NT Live and watch what NT Live has on, which also has Prima Facie on, but that's not why I'm telling you, because you will see the recording of theater with five cameras. So it's like you're there. It's like and it's the best theater in the world that the NT Live has from London, which is amazing. It's expensive, it's about two hundred dollars a year, but it's worth it if you actually and you can you can mirror it onto your television and watch. So this is the National Theatre. Yeah, the National mm-hmm. Theatre Live. And then the other thing I would do is if you're serious about writing plays, you, you'd you write your first draft and then you would talk to the Australian Writers Guild and find a dramaturg that you can pay to read it properly and give you a professional report about where you should go in your next draft. And rather than languishing, sending it to directors and people not getting back to you, it moves you forward into your next draft and then your further draft. And at that point, you can start sending it to directors and they get excited. So that would be my three tips. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time today. You are an inspiration on so many levels and um, everyone go get yourself a copy of Prima Facie. It's absolutely incredible. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate Valerie. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I think this woman is a genius and if you have a chance to read anything she writes or watch any uh, productions of her plays, do it. You won't regret it. Please do connect with us on social media as well as all of the other listeners through our listener community on Facebook. Just go to Facebook and search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Of course, you can connect with me there or also on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O. And you can check out what I'm doing alongside all of my shenanigans and my personal newsletter over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast. Or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.